Welcome to Babble Over Brews. Deep thoughts for men over time and text. I'm coming at you, Aaron Crew Juice for Verka, and I've got Gumby. Hola. We've got uh, a guest, Tom. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Keith? Coming at you live with four chickens and a feral toddler in my backyard. <laughs> and our very special guest, Brian Godawa. Hey, guys. Great to be here. Do you like my new plant in the background? I don't, but i got to come up with something. I, I kind of like the idea of ferns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who is that, Keith? The fern man? Yeah. I'll get some ferns there. We were talking about it. Maybe I'll do three ferns so that we're not completely derivative of something else. All right. I like it. I, I love greens. I love plants. Um, eventually, we'll have some in here as well. <laughs> um, we're going to get to your new book. But first, let's introduce the drink. The original expression of our elegant floral spirit and the real backbone of the Glenmorangie range. A 10-year-old single malt, Glenmorangie original is produced by marrying the delicate spirit that emerges from Scotland's tallest stills with first and second fill American white oak casks. It is here maturing for 10 years in a range of ex-bourbon casks such as our famous slow-grown and air-dried designer casks from Missouri that our raw spirit develops a perfect balance between sweetness and complexity, resulting in a mature spirit that is soft, mellow, and creamy, perfect for enjoying at any time. Not as mellow as your voice. Well, thank you, good sir. (laughs) And then... I apologize. We will get a, a drink to you, uh, Mr. Godawa. Um, I meant to do it this time, and I uh, just got back from Muay Thai camp, so I was away up in the mountains, and I didn't get a chance to order anything. So my apologies. I forgive you. <laughs> we'll get something so to you. In revenge, I'm not drinking one. today. Uh, tonight, I'm drinking high brew, triple shot coffee. Ooh, oh man! That's I'm trying. I'm doing the opposite. I'm getting wired rather than loosed. Yeah. That sounds good. A man after my own heart. <laughs> I love a good coffee. <laughs> and this is actually the first time I've had this one. Len Mirage. Oh man, this is great. Uh, cheers. Cheers. cheers Ooh, that is good. And one of the things I do love about a good scotch is that very subtle flavor of bourbon inside of it. It's a, it definitely got a, a little bit of a, a lighter tone yes, compared like to a lot of the other. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's going to pair nice with my oh, cigar. Man. That's really good. It's, man, that's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> So last week we were up in the mountains. We were actually drinking a peated scotch, uh, much heavier, much, much heavier, deeper uh, oils and complexities. This is light and floral, a slight citrus tone to it, um, but it doesn't, definitely has a light complexity to it. It's, it's very enjoyable. There's a good burn, though, on the way down. I yeah, like that. Yeah, I, I do love a good burn. Yeah. <laughs> you need to burn a little bit. <laughs> So, Brian, um, we actually did find a, a short film online. <laughs> ah, you found a little, a, a little Easter egg, did you? Yes, we did. <laughs> Scared the bejeebies out of me, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> so, is that tied to the book? Yeah, let me, uh, I'll introduce the book and um, I'll tell kind of how we got here and, and what has to do with that uh, that uh, short film. <clears throat> so the book, as you can see behind me, Cruel Logic, my new novel coming out September 12th. And uh, you can pre-order it now on Amazon, um, but it's going to eventually be open in, or be available in audiobook and paperback and Kindle. Right now you can uh, um, pre-order on Amazon. But, um, and what it is, is it's, it's, a, it's a departure from my previous novels that I've been writing for the last decade, and you guys have been gracious enough to have me on several times, um, and, uh, you know, you see behind me the other uh, thing, Chronicles of the Nephilim. And they're awesome. And then 
Chronicles of the Watchers and then Chronicles of the Apocalypse. Anyway, you know, you know, those were the novels where, you know, I was I'm retelling Bible stories and that have to do with the giants and watchers and the supernatural realm and all that kind of stuff. And, and I'm continuing to write those as a series because I love them and, and I enjoy them. But um, this last year, I did, I wanted to, I've been wanting for a long time to take a break and uh, do, do some, some other, a new genre. And the genre is sort of the thriller genre. But I, I call it theological thrillers because I like to write about... I like to write intelligent thrillers, not just, you know, the, guy, the serial killer who's killing people and how can they catch him, but to, to write also about human nature, the problem of evil and the mm-hmm. existence of God and, and you know, in, 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 include those kinds of issues because I think that really dealing with evil in a story is an opportunity to plumb the depths of our existence because evil makes you really think about the meaning of existence, right? So that's kind of my interest and in, in such. And, and I had this story called Cruel Logic in my brain uh, many years ago. And when I was still in Hollywood, I, I'd written a script called Cruel Logic. And the, the story is about a serial killer who captures university professors and he debates with them on video. He records it, right? And the topic of the debate is his moral right to kill them. So he'll, you know, he'll say, he'll catch some professor and tie him up and he'll say, okay, if what you believe is, you know, what you're teaching at the university, if you believe what you believe about the universe or the world is true, give me one valid reason why I should not kill you and I'll let you go. And as each professor tries to argue why it would be wrong to murder them, right? Um, the, the, the killer who's called, his, his, his name is the philosopher killer because he was a philosophy professor and before he went on his killing spree, right? And so he actually dismantles each of their arguments, basically showing them that they have no foundation for uh, any claim against him murdering them. And that's sort of the, the sort of the heart and soul of the, of the script that I had originally written, like I said, many years ago. And I've been trying to make it as a movie in Hollywood, low budget, you know. Um, people love the script. It's, it won awards and contests, but I just, wow. as, as Hollywood is, you, you never know what movie is going to take and what movies you can get made or not. And I've uh, mm-hmm. never been able to get it made as a movie all these years. So I, but it's been my baby because, and I'll talk about why, but it's been one of my stories close to my heart and mind. And, and so I thought, you know what, now's the time I got to get this into a novel. And what's interesting is that, um, oh, so, so that, that short film you saw, one of the ways that I tried to get interest to show producers, this could be a cool movie is I shot and directed a scene out of the script and I extended it of one of the debates okay. and it's not gross. It's the, I don't show any violence or anything like that. It's just the professor uh, argue, debating with the killer and it's called crew logic and it's on my website. You know, if you go to my website, look under my you know films and stuff, you'll find it there. And um, yeah, so that's been around for a few years and it, it, it's got a lot of traction. Um, famous apologist, uh, by the name of Greg Kokel, uh, just loved it. And he sort of, you know, pitched it and he was using it in his classes to, to communicate some of the argumentation, um, about atheism and such. Right. So, uh, you know, and, and so he's loved it and, and it, it helped go viral for a bit when it first came out. And yeah, so, so now all these years later, What's happened is when I wrote it, of course, you know, um, <laughs> at the time, uh, or let's put it this way, the universities, the American higher education has been captured by uh, sort of leftist philo- ideology, cultural Marxism, postmodernism. It sort of has been captured by that, those viewpoints for quite some time, and it, it started roughly in the 60s, and, and now they, they have hold of everything. 
but but at the time I wrote it, I was not. It was not as much in the. It was not in the news at all, and I was I was only aware of a little bit of it. So it wasn't really an issue that that was in my story. So by the time I now write the novel, the whole notion of wokeness on campus, of course, is now major in everything. And so now the story Crew Logic has a, an, a, a, a wider sort of uh, environment in which this serial killing is taking place on a woke campus. And I also have a, a two main stories going on is this serial killer and a, a psychologist helping a cop to, ca- to track him down, catch him. Um, and at the same time, I also am telling the story of another thing that I think is really important in our society. And as a Christian, I've seen this. I've been aware of it. Uh, and so it's been on my heart. And that is what we call, what they call Christian deconversion or Christian deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And what that means is, is there's, it's very pop. It, it's kind of popular now, at least among cel- Christian celebrities where, they either go to college or over time they end up giving up their faith, you know, and, and, um, of course that issue has been around forever. You know, Christians go to college and they, you know, they, they're not prepared or they haven't been taught well and they get secular humanism or whatever. And, and they lose their, their faith. That's been a very common thing, but just recent years that that's what they've been calling it deconstruction. Right. And so, um, I've been hearing a lot of these testimonies about that, you know, and some of them are celebrities. So I, I tell, I tell a story about an evangelical Christian who is a typical, you know, evangelical in today's world. And, you know, the sort of is taught, you know, not a mega church, but in a mega church wannabe, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and he goes to college and he gets caught up into the wokeness and it carries him into a journey uh, into social justice and identity politics that's on campus that ultimately ends up forcing him to make a critical decision that's life or death in his life, you know? And so that was another story element that I, I wanted to, to cover, it, deal with in the story because it's all connected mm. to this major theme of Western civilization and the loss, or let's put it this way, the loss of, the absence of God in Western civilization, the death of God, really. I mean, uh, the death of God in Western civilization and what are its consequences. So one of my taglines of the story is, ideas have consequences. And that's that's the sort of basic uh, basic storyline of the novel that I, I wrestle through a lot of these issues, you know? And that was the inspiration, and that's where I am now, where um, it's kind of the culmination of also a lot of my personal interests. For many years, I've been, for as, mo- mo- for as long as I can remember being a Christian, I've been interested in philosophy, um, worldviews, and apologetics. You know, I've, you know, I've gone through a lot of apologetics study and and what does it mean to defend the faith? And even just for Christians, it's like, what is your faith founded on? And, and can you defend your faith? Or are you sort of the typical pathetic evangelical Christian or whatever kind of Christian where you don't really, you're not really capable of defending your faith? And if that's the case, what will happen when you finally face really strong skeptical arguments and you're not prepared for them? How can it affect you? I wanted to go through that process and, and try to understand it. Um, because I, I think it's, I think it's serious issue, but I also think it's an issue that all Christians at some time in their life go through and have to go through, which is you really need to, to, to question your faith, what, what it's founded on, you know, what do you really believe and, and why do you believe it? And are you really, you know, are you really rooted in something that's true? I think you just shouldn't live a life of just well, I was raised this way. My parents brought me up and that's what I believe, you know? So I think it's a good thing to, to question, to look at, you know, at your beliefs, no matter who you are, <laughs> yeah. but for Christians as well. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of the, the, uh, the big picture of, of the, of the novel of what's going on. Okay. As, as somebody who had a major, uh, faith journey myself, I could totally familiarize with that. You know, it's, I've, 
was agnostic at one point. I, I, I spent time looking and seeking. And so I can definitely familiarize with that kind of storyline. Um, and uh, you were so kind as to give us uh, a copy of the book. And it is very interesting to see, uh, even in the prologue, that kind of discourse and, and what it leads to. Yeah. So, Brian, what is on the table? Are we not allowed to give spoiler alerts or can? Yeah, uh, yeah, you know that's a, actually that's a very good question. I need to, you guys are like you guys are only the second interview I've had, so you're special, okay? All right. Actually, you're, it's not just that you're special; it's that you are responsive. And I basically first come first serve, man. And anyone who's who who comes to me first, it's like you know I'm not going to hold off, and you you get the first dibs and stuff. But that's something I need to yeah I need to point you know uh, yeah please don't give away the crucial yeah. uh, the the crucial twists you know yeah and I hope that we can discuss some of it. But uh, all right, so we'll kind of dance yeah. dance around some of the things. Yeah yeah I think yeah it's but you know it's kind of like a movie. I think you I think you you know. You you have a good you'll have a good sense of you know what might be giving too much away, but this notion of of the debate and and the debate itself of of the various issues you know yeah. that's fine, uh, but whether the twists near the end and most of the twists happen near the end so yeah basically don't discuss the ending okay. you know there's a few good twists in there, All but right. you know. I'm happy to discuss the issue of the, you know, the deconstruction, the atheism versus Christianity and apologetics, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah let's so, go there if uh, you want to. Initially reading it, I think a couple things struck me, Brian. Uh, one, I mean, I grew up evangelical. I think you already knew that. We talked about it before on the podcast. Yep. Uh, you know, being involved in music. I kind of related to that character. Um. Too. The other issue that really kind of hit home with me is I'm sending a daughter off to college. Uh, and so it really got my wheels spinning. I'm like, wait a minute. Do I even really, really know what curriculum? And I won't say the name of the college, but it, it really sparked a good conversation with my wife to say, hey, what, you know, what's some of the classes that she will be learning that are not, you know, not part of her um you know her study that she wants to do that some things that they're going to be kind of sneaking in or yeah i was a little yeah. concerned about it honestly well actually you know what I'm, I'm glad you brought that up that's a very good question or actually i'm grateful i'm grateful that that that's how you responded um while i don't have a like my agenda is to tell a great story based on what i see you know i don't care how people respond to it in in one sense it's like you know respond i'm i'm just telling the truth as i see it and hopefully people will will draw from it what they can but what you say is it, it it's a i'm glad you brought it up because i everything that occurs in that that story and and yeah a lot of it i take let me put it this way. I, a lot of the way that the evangelical Christian is and what he believes mm -hmm. when he starts out there is the way I was raised. I no longer think that way, but he's got a very weak faith, a very sort of cliche beliefs that a lot of people have, yeah. a lot of Christians have, um, but I come from it too. So it, it is drawn for, as well as particular sin issues. You know, I right. deal with porn. You know, the Christian has a, has, a, has a problem with porn, and that's another issue that a lot of churches are really afraid to talk about, or, uh, yeah, not just churches, just Christian fellowship groups, and it's, it's, it's a, you know, near universal problem, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm like, I want to, this is part of the problem, and this is part of our weakness, right? Um, so, but, but I wanted to say that everything that occurs on the campus in my story is rooted in real stuff. In real events, in some way, so I'm not just making the stuff up. You know, I'm not. Just, oh, he's just, you know, uh, you know, the the way the, the the way that the university professors are, and you know, etc. It's like, no, I'm not. In fact, I ended up footnoting some key places. Excuse me, throughout the book, I'm I'm, I'm becoming a dangerously known for doing something that novelists should not do, and that is footnote. <laughs> you know, but. Uh, I think just because of the controversial nature of the stuff, um, I like to sort of help people know uh, this isn't just made up. This is real stuff. So I'll, 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 when you read the novel, you'll see some of those footnotes. For example, um, you know, 
I talk about, I have sex week on campus. And of course, sex week was actually began in Yale university decades ago. Mm. And there's even a book on it called sex and God at Yale, which is a really good book. I got a lot of, I got a lot of my facts from there. So all the things that occur in sex week, you know, when they go to hear prostitutes or porn stars talk about, um, you know, dildos and, and, and how to do oral sex and all this stuff. That's real, real stuff that really happens at sex week. Right. And, um, all, and, and a lot of what the teachers are saying, some of it, I draw from actual famous atheists or famous scientists or whatever. I literally will draw from some of their language. In fact, that's why I also footnote it because I don't want people to think I'm plagiarizing, but I'm like, I want people to know that I'm kind of directly referring to real people in the world so you know that I'm not exaggerating. You know what I mean? Right. I, picked, I picked up on that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sure. So so I want people to know that. And, and for you to know that as well, that, yeah, this isn't made up. This is heavily researched. And um, so so it's it, I do believe you should be be thinking about that thing, that stuff. And and to understand that. Um, that it really is captured in all, it's like, it's, it's in science. It's not just in gender studies and feminist studies and women's studies and all that. It's in science classes. It's in history. It's in philosophy. It's in all the classes. I mean, there was a time years ago when I, I used to, when, when I was aware of all this trans ideology and feminist ideology and all that stuff and even postmodernism. And I would, I would think, oh, well, but it's not in science because science is the hard stuff, right? You know, and you can't, you can't deny reality, you know, with science, but now they do. And, you know, they're denying male and female biological distinctions. They're denying actual science in science. So, so it's, cap, it's been all the, all the, all the elements of, of higher education have been captured now by the ideology and um so therefore oh and by the way i want to say you know it, it this isn't just secular universities there are many christian universities who have also become woke mm. um and christian schools are not exempt uh in general they might be a little bit better but it's it's in everywhere and part of the problem is because if they are an accredited university uh then they have to follow a lot of standards and regulations and the thing is is that the, the major institutions of higher education over which, that are over, you know, the, the, the country to which all these universities draw from are already themselves controlled by what's called DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion. Oh, and that is a philosophy or I would call it, it's, it's, a, it's an expression of the monster, of the Frankenstein. In other words a lot of what I deal with and a lot of what I would argue is going on in higher education is rooted in this term they call diversity, equity, inclusion, which in a sense is an embodiment of the leftist philosophy that I'm critiquing. And that is in all the, the, the uh, it's in the, all the Fortune 500 companies and in the HR departments and it's in the, it's in the bureaucracies of higher education. So, so that it, and that is a is a world that worldview that ultimately promotes critical theory and the notion that um, you know white supremacy America is a white supremacist racist country where and all whites are inherently racist and um, all the all the disparities that occur in uh, statistics whether it's poverty or crime or whatever, all the disparities the, uh, in, in race, you know, um, are due to racism, not to personal responsibility. So all this stuff and, and also the DEI, and I deal with this, I explain this all in my, in my novel too, um, in an entertaining way, of course, but it's, it's sort of the, yeah, like I, it's the monster that is forcing everyone to follow these, these, uh, sort of uh, ways of thinking and imposing them on everything. So mm. that's that's the argument, you know. Okay. The whole uh, mob rule mentality. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, yeah. I found that part interesting in the book. Um, and again, I'll, I won't say too much. I won't give 
a lot of, but I, I was very captivated by that one scene where, uh, I think the head of the DEI, I can't remember her name. Yeah. Elizabeth Bathory. Confronted the mob and, uh, and she gave in to every demand, but nothing was good enough. Yeah. 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 No, you can talk about that. That's fine. All this stuff about what's going on campus, I'm fine with. It's just the twist at the end. It's just the twist at the end. (laughs) Another great, another thing you brought up, that, that whole scene was based on the Evergreen incident that occurred a few years back with, uh, Brett Weinstein and her, his wife, they went to this Evergreen University, which is in, what is it, Washington State or uh, Oregon? I can't remember where, but okay. it's, it's, it is literally considered one of the most um, woke universities in the nation. And th- they, they had this, um, they came out with this, uh, a day where all the white people have to stay home. Um, wow. And all the white students and white teachers had to stay home and only the black people could go to class or whatever. Right. And, and these several professors, including the Weinsteins, uh, stood against that. And they tried to come, they tried to come to, and to, and to try to argue why this isn't, this isn't appropriate. This is racism. Right. And they were shouted down and the students mobbed them basically, you know, and, a lot of the things they said and did, I, I embodied in my story because I just found, like, the truth is stranger than fiction. So it's like, you know, uh, uh, yeah. So there was an incident. There was a time where, um, uh, and, and, and by the way, that's not the only incident. This has happened on multiple universities. So I've drawn from several incidents, but that was, that was a, a key inspiring event, right? And there was, I rem- for me, I remember, and I put this in the novel, I do remember hearing the story of this one where the, the one of the, uh, um, uh, what do they call them? The um, the bureaucracy of the of the administration. One of the administration uh, women had tried to speak to the group of kids that were all chanting and all this, and and she's on their side. And this really happened in, in real life. And she's like, you know, she's 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 expressive and she's trying to say, you know, we're on your side, etc. And this student comes out and says, "Stop moving your hands." That's racist, you know. You're, 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 you know, you're, you're, uh, you're being aggressive. Put your hands by your side like this. And so she obeyed, and she looked like this robot. And even then, it wasn't good enough. Lower your voice. So it was this fascist mob uh, attempt to oppress the administration who was on their side, which is another component of the whole crew logic story. And, and that is, uh, without revealing too many details, that I try to show that this juggernaut of wokeism, which, you know, I would be happy to define as, as this, uh, yeah, this, this sort of cultural Marxism capturing the university, the, the you know, it's dangerous to oversimplify, okay, but for the sake <laughs> of, this, so people know, you know, yeah. so you have some idea one of the ways I simplify it is it's a worldview that basically reduces the world into two classes of people, the oppressed and the oppressor. And basically the oppressor is all white, male, heterosexual, conservative slash Christian, you know, uh, they are the ultimate oppressor of everybody. And the oppressed are all the various minority groups, right? And that's a worldview that then you apply it to everything, right? And so, um, where was I going with this? Um, um, so the university uh, is is promoting this, and oh, I, lo- I was losing track of where I was going with it. Um, it was the event uh, that we talked oh. about. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the, the, the idea is just that people don't realize that this is a Frankenstein. It's going to turn on its creator. Mm. And of course, we see this now in, t- in, in today's world, which is the woke themselves get eaten by their own, right? When you step out of line and say you're on the left, like, uh, you know, even I think this, this one uh, far leftist, Anna, I can't remember her last name, Kasparian, I think it is. She's on the Young Turks, or what is it, the Young Turks or something like that. Mm-hmm. And she's a far leftist, um, but 
She's one of the few who are open-minded, willing to debate conservatives like Ben Shapiro. Yeah. So she's a little bit more open, but she's very far left. She even would came out and would just say, you know, the difference between men and women is real and stop, you know, stop, you know, promoting this lie. And she gets attacked yeah. by the left. Mm. And yeah. whenever a trans person uh, recognizes what they did was not good and they try to detransition, you know, uh, like Chloe Cole and various others, when they try, when they de and say, no, I, I, I want to I be the girl that I am and I don't want to be a boy and I'm not a boy and, I, and, I'm, and so I'll stop taking the hormones and try to get back to being the girl that I was born as, right? When those, which they call detransitioners, they are attacked and destroyed and canceled by the, the people who were on their side, who groomed them to accept it, right? Mm. So this notion of, you know, that wokeism is this ultimate inclusive community. This is the, the I of the DEI inclusion. Inclusion gives you the illusion that, oh yeah, we include everybody. Not like the excluding people like Christianity and, and, and Western civilization excludes people. No, we include them. But actually that inclusion ends up eating their own as, as soon as you step out of line and you don't agree with every doctrine of the mob, right? Mm. And so the inclusion ends up actually being... Uh, as well being an exclusionary mechanism. So all the components, diversity, equity, and inclusion, end up being actual opposites of what they claim to be. They don't want diversity. They want everyone to think the same, right? They don't want equity. Equity is the equal distribution. Uh, their belief is equity is, is e equality of outcomes, right? And that's not equitable, actually. To do that, actually, is inequitable, uh, inclusion is actually exclusion. So this is, this is sort of that reality of that monster. And I try to, to embody that in the story. You know, this isn't, while it's an intellectual thriller, you know, I have the philosophical discussion because I like philosophy, but I believe in entertainment. And my goal is to have an interesting story that embodies something that is real in the, 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 the way, the, the kinds of things that are going on in this world. I want it to, to, to ring true to people. And, um, so yeah, that's what I try to do is to depict that this wokeism that you think is this sort of let's have everybody equal and fair and compassionate it actually will turn on you like, like a crocodile, you know, you're feeding others to the crocodile and then you're the last one and the crocodile eats you, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's, uh, I'm glad you brought up, uh, the, I, I meant to say this earlier, the porn thing. For anybody who is struggling with porn, uh, we have a guy, uh, Matt Frad. He's actually out of Steubenville, Ohio. Um, he has great outreach for people who are suffering from porn. Uh, Matt Frad, F-A-R-D-D-D, F-R-A-D-D. So he's a great person to reach out to for any kind of porn addictions or anything like that. Cool. Yeah. Uh, what's really interesting is some of the uh, science coming up out of other countries, like say, uh, say Finland or, uh, or even Sweden, um, they've actually passed laws to prevent transitions and stuff in anybody who is yeah, young. I saw some of that. Yeah. 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 Because some of the science is saying, no, at a younger stage, this is very harmful, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. If you're an adult, whatever, yeah. but you know. <laughs> I've heard the same thing at Tavistock in England, which was one of the, one of the world's, uh, you know, largest, I think, um, uh, medical facility that engaged in the, you know, so-called transitioning uh, surgeries, even that, even they have actually stopped doing it. And so, yeah, there is some good news and hopefully, hopefully science will win in the end. But you know what, you guys, I, it's, I, I gotta say, this is, a, this, this is another, this is what Frankenstein is to me, like my favorite horror story of all time because it really is like so relevant to so many aspects of our society but and what I mean is is that um, I used to believe you know I still have hope that I still have hope that when you when you deny reality you ultimately will hit a brick wall ultimately you know how long will that take I don't know and and so I used to be 
confident that postmodern postmodernity, which is sort of at the heart of a lot of this, you know, postmodernism is sort of like another definition needed, I think. Postmodernism is sort of a rejection of modernity, meaning modernism is a is a overemphasis and a worship of science and reason. And um Postmodernity sort of deconstructs science and reason and shows its its failures and weaknesses. And I think that there are failures and weaknesses to the worship of science and reason, right? Yeah. But it goes to the other extreme and it rejects reason as a white supremacy construct to oppress people, right? As and science is the same, right? And so I've often I've often thought like, you know, eventually you can't beat science because it's, a, you know, biology is the brick wall, blah, blah, blah. But what I've seen happen, it's amazing there how far they have gotten denying reality. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. um, and I still have hope, you know, I still have hope for that in the sense of, uh, you know, I do. But I also have come to believe, well, it is possible to deny it for pretty long. And the denial is not... It, the denial is is the the ability the imaginative ability of human mind to create a a delusional world it's like conspiracy theories right like peop, conspiracy theories are very very strong in the populace i'm sad to say that many of them have turned out to be true but but uh but the general concept of of Someone can believe something completely opposite of reality. The mind is that capable of imagination, mm. which means imagination is very powerful, right? But it can be a good tool or a bad tool, right? Yeah. So the mind can create it such that everything you say, it can turn around and be, everything you say that disproves the theory in the delusional mind can turn it around into evidence for the theory. And that's eventually, that's essentially what postmodernity post does. That's what critical theory does. That's what trans ideology does. So, so, but it's rooted in a kind of it's rooted in a philosophy. So it's not just arbitrary, um, sort of like, why can't men be women? Yeah, okay, yeah, I feel like a woman, yeah. No, there's a whole history. There's a really great book that I highly recommend everyone read called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. And he charts the philosophical progress in society to where we got today to how this crazy insanity of believing that a man can become a woman. How, how did we get here, right? Mm. And I remember when at first, when I, when I was first coming out, I'm like, that's crazy. Who, who possibly believes that, right? And it's still crazy, but it's like, no. If you see the progress in society, we got here incrementally. Mm. It doesn't just happen overnight. People don't just believe crazy, absurd things overnight. It builds. First, you have to start saying, oh, you know, uh, truth isn't objective. People's subjective truth is, is where truth is. What you experience in the inner self is, is, is true. You know, it's not just objective truth. And then it becomes an elevation of the subjective truth over the objective truth. And then it becomes, well, if I feel subjectively like a woman, then that is more real than objective truth. And then if you, if you believe that, um, external reality is not, objective it's determined by the mind you can craft external reality to match your internal internal subjective view and there's a kind of truth to this right meaning meaning uh we can use our imagination to alter physical reality right there's a kind of sense of truth about that right but what that means is is our biology our external biology is not tr is not reality it's just a thing that's out there. So if my mind believes femaleness, I can alter, I can cut off my, my uh, sexual organs and I can use surgery to craft an externally uh, appearing, uh, you know, female, then I've, uh, all I've done is I've constructed my objective reality to match my internal reality and both are, see, so there is a, there's a kind of mad logic to it for sh to be sure, yeah. even though it's rooted still in, in, in insanity and evil. But, um, when you understand that you have a better understanding of the enemy. 
and we can't, you know, uh, we can't be reacting to this. That's crazy. That's absurd. That's insane. Well, yeah, it is, but we, you have to understand your enemy to know how to fight them too, you know? So that's, uh, maybe that's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I do deal <laughs> a little bit with the trans, uh, trans ideology in the novel. That's not the focus, but I definitely deal with an individual who's struggling with that themselves and I try to I try to tell the story very compassionately because yeah. this isn't a it's not a matter of Christians and right wingers hate trans people. That's what trans people have to construct in their minds in order to justify their hatred of us mm -hmm. and their violence against us. They're becoming violent now. Right. So by saying, well, they hate us. They want to you know put us in camps and kill us. Therefore, we can lash out at them violently. And that's what's going on. Right. They, they have to construct that delusional worldview. But in reality, we actually love them and want to help them with the mental illness. And so I'm trying to tell a story that, that at least acknowledges their personal subjective feelings and trying to, to wrestle with, but where does this really come from? You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, but yeah, that's yeah. just a minor component in the story. I also deal with r critical race theory you know, and the whole race issue, which we could go on talk about forever, but I won't. Well, two things, Brian. One thing... Um as far as uh, that thinking leading to violence, it's it's hard to ignore what happened in Nashville, the mass shooting at a Christian school. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's pretty hard to ignore that ideology didn't somehow uh, lead to that. And there's only one reason why they're not releasing the manifesto. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's exactly that. It's exactly yeah. a justification for violence against Christians yeah. based on the victimhood status, which is, you know, Dennis Prager says this, and I agree with him. The greatest evils in history have, have always been done by victims, you know? Mm. Hitler and not they thought that they were the biggest victims of world war one because of the way they were treated afterwards right yeah. and that's what allowed them to to lash out with the greatest you know evil in the 20th century just no actually it wasn't it was one of the greatest right mao murdered a lot more people right but but victims are are and it's almost like that's which, by the way, that is another component that I really try to deal with, you know, um, with my serial killer as well um, in the story, you know. Um, what, what are the kinds of moral justifications? If, if you, I, I deal with, in the novel, I try to deal with insanity, you know, is, is he insane? Is this killer insane? Is he just evil? And, and all of those issues that are surrounding serial killers and the, the usual kind of like these extreme killings and, you know, and all that, and what they wrestle with legally as well, right? Um, but in the end, I want to really sort of um, uh, fa face this reality of, of what is going on in, in this world without dismissing it as, you know, oh, that's just insanity, that's just crazy, that's absurd, you know, whatever. And, yeah. and so I've, I've created that sort of, now the truth is, Again, this is just one story, and you know, I, I even acknowledge the fact that insanity is a reality in a lot of serial killings. There, there are some people that have true mental illnesses that their, you know, their root, their behavior is rooted in. Um, but I also think that there's a component in many of them that is simply evil. And how does that come into play? You know, the modern, you know, the modern um, uh, medical theory of mental illness is that. You know, the psychoanalytical theory is, you know, the, that these extreme antisocial behaviors are always rooted in some physical or environmental sort of background. And, and I wouldn't deny that, but, but it's, it tends to be reduced to that. You know, uh, higher serotonin levels, uh, um, dysmorphic amygdalas, you know, the limbic region in the brain, they tend to see, oh, if we look at serial killers, we say they, you know, they have an unusually small amygdala and the, in the amygdala is where we get the empathic notions. And, and there might be some truth to all of these components, right? But modern theory tends to be re reductive to these physical or medical components, right? Uh, or psychoanalytic components. And it does tend to deny the evil nature of man, which if you look in the history of psych psychiatry, you know, it's, it's interesting. I bring this out in the novel that the uh, uh, dealing with these depraved acts of evil 
they had various theories in the past where now we would look down upon them, uh, but they called it moral madness at one time, mm. you know, but you see that moral, th th it was them trying to wrestle with the fact that these are, these incidents are so abnormally un inhuman that it doesn't, it can't be explained in just one sense, but there, there's a madness to it, but they believe there was a moral element to it as well. But now that moral component is almost, at least in the various theories of, of, you know, modern, you know, modern psychiatry and such, a lot of that has been discounted, you know, dismissed. Um, so I try to, I try to try to wrestle with that as well. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, um, I was curious. Uh, so Charles Cullen is fascinating. <laughs> I have to know, is he based on a real study of a real person? Because he's... I agree, I agree with you, Eric. Yeah. You kind of end up rooting for him. <laughs> right. He, he's, he's a bit fascinating. So what is he based on or who is he based on, if, if anyone? Well, I would say he was inspired by... <laughs> okay. The same character that every serial killer story has been inspired by since the novel came out. Hannibal Lecter. All right. <laughs> uh, but definitely Hannibal Lecter was definitely sort of a, um, you know, an inspiration, I would call it. But no, quite frankly, this novel, this novel is a theological thriller. Um, and it, it has, uh, you know, my goal was to embody. Uh, okay, I'll tell you what. Here's, here's where I actually got the idea from. It's not based on an actual literal character, although... I'm sure there are serial killers in history who, in fact, I, I won't say I'm sure there are. I know there are that were very intelligent, such as Jeffrey Dahmer. Yes. And Jeffrey Dahmer actually did, there is a statement that I have um, where he actually did say, hey, look, if based on natural selection and evolution, it's like there's no God, there's no external uh, you know, morality that I'm accountable to. I'm only, I'm the ruler of myself. You know, nobody rules me. It's just organisms surviving. So in that real sense, there are killers who have come to this realization or, or let's say this, the justification of their evil deeds is rooted in a, in a lot of it, evolutionary notions for one. Mm -hmm. But um, the inspiration of the story actually came from a, uh, many years ago, I listened to this Christian, famous Christian apologist named Walter Martin. Now, he's back in the 60s and the 70s, so most people don't know about him, but Walter was a rascal. I really liked him. He was real a fighter, and he, liked, and he was also funny, and he was rowdy with his apologetics. And so he, I remember listening to him on this Long John Nebel show from the 60s. So I listened to it on cassette tape, you know, and uh, b before my time, but... And he was talking to, on a radio show, and he was explaining how, you know, this one time he was talking to an atheist and trying to tell the atheist, you don't have any foundation for your morality. If there's no God, um, there's no accountability for any moral behavior, you know. And, and the atheist kept trying to say, no, I believe in morality. I believe there's morality. He's like, no, no, I, I'm not, you don't understand. Yeah, you believe in it, but you don't have any foundation for it. It's like there's, if, if, if there's, if, if at bottom reality is randomness, you know, and, and evolution, there's no basis for, for moral behaviors, you know? Yeah. And yeah. he got so frustrated that the guy was not listening to me. He said, okay, look, it's 1940. I'm a German camp guard. You're a Jewish prisoner. I've got a gun pointed at you right now. Give me one reason why I shouldn't kill you, you know? And that always stuck in my mind for many years. And that kind of became the inspiration for the philosophical notion of the moral argument for the existence of God in particularly related to the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. So in, in it, it is a, you know, perennial problem through all of philosophy and every human has to deal with it and struggle with it. And I do still, and that is the problem of evil and the existence of God. And so this book is sort of the incarnation of that, of the Christian argument dealing with the problem of evil. Um, and the existence of God. And uh, so that's kind of the serial killer becomes a uh, sort of incarnation of what if someone really, you know, uh, was consistent with this atheistic worldview and how might they behave, that kind of a thing. Yeah, that's interesting, especially on the philosophic side. I was talking to a friend of mine earlier 
And uh, because on the Christian side, philosophically, sometimes it can be hard to justify a lot of life because a lot of what a lot of life. Um, are, you, are you familiar with like like Hegel and Lacan and uh, and so they're Little. so their their law uh, philosophically their law of life comes from negation. So the, literally, life comes from death. So it almost becomes hard to justify some of that philosophically. And I think even to this day, even us as Christians are afraid to admit that some of these things philosophically are hard to deal with. So I can definitely sure. familiarize with some of that. Yeah. And I, I, I try to be open to that because to be quite frankly, to be quite frank, really, I've noticed that a dominant theme in a lot of my writing is the problem of evil. And the existence of God, because, and and I would say evil slash suffering, uh, which is why the book of Ecclesiastes is my has always been my personal favorite book, because I think it's a very honest, transparent look at life, and saying, look, you know, um, let's not delude ourselves with Panglossian best of all possible worlds understanding. You know, what I mean, with this sort of. Um, you know, rose-colored glasses, even if you believe in God, the world is full of a lot of unfairness, yeah. <laughs> a lot of suffering, and it's hard in our finite minds to, uh, to understand that reality in correlation with our belief in a all-loving, all-powerful God, right? Yeah. And there's a philosophical argument, you know, with Hume. Hume made famous with his, you know, statement of, you know, is, is if, if, if God is all loving, uh, uh, but there is evil, right? Um, then how can he be loving or how can he be all loving and all powerful if there's evil, yeah. you know, uh, because if he was all loving, he would want to get rid of evil. Mm -hmm. If he was all powerful, he would get rid of evil. Right. But there's, whence there's evil. Or, or his, his question was like, well, then once evil, in other words, there is evil. So how can God, God is either malevolent or impotent, which is a knock on the definition of the Christian God. And uh, that's the philosophical component that I also wrestle with. But personally, even as a Christian, I still, I think the most, the deep, most deeply disturbing thing about reality to me is the amount of suffering and evil that is in this world. And if you, if you pull back and try to see outside of your puny little, you know, happy life, you know, cause I got a basically a good little happy life, you know, yeah. we, we've had our, but you know, when you pull back and you see, you know, the sex trafficking, yeah. millions of children being tortured over, and this is not a imagine, this is real. Oh yeah. And the murders and every, from a God's eye view, if you consider the millions of murders, rapes, torturing and suffering that people are doing to each other and that God allows that to happen or however you conceive of it, God ordains it. Um, uh, it's, it should disturb your soul and make you troubled. Even if you believe in God. Yeah. Yep. I'm not. However, I do believe that there is a rock solid, absolute logical argument uh, against that. But it's not accepted by people. And the, log the, the logical argument is this. It's, it's very simple. I, people don't like simple things because it sounds too easy. But it really is true that the answer to Hume is that, that, that there's a fourth premise that he ignores. And that is in the Bible. And that is God has revealed that he, he's not, he has told us he has a morally sufficient reason for the evil that he ordains in the world. But he doesn't tell us what it is. So that people will not like that psychologically. It's an emotional problem, but it's not a logical problem. It's completely legitimate to argue that there's a problem that we don't know that he's not revealed to us. And uh, so it's not a logical problem. The problem of evil is not logical. It is emotional and psychological. Mm. And um, like I said, people won't like that and they'll have all these arguments but, and complaints, but it, it, the logic is not the problem. And that's what I also tried to, to wrestle with as well because uh, uh, the truth is, is that, that um, understanding our creative God and, and, and understanding the world in which we are in uh, 
re- requires understanding some truths that he's revealed to us that, quite frankly, a lot of people don't like, you yeah. know, such as original sin, you know, stuff like that. So, well, and even even um, Hume was really echoing Epicurus, right? In Ep- Epicurean logic, that's actually where he, where he's just echoing it from early Grecian Epicurean logic. That's where it comes from because he was yeah. the first one to make that argument. Was was yeah. Epicurus. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating to see that that rigmarole go back and forth. I would actually uh, echo. Oh, who was it? It was he's before Kant. Um, another philosopher who simply stated, "There can be no true love without true free will." And so, there sin has to exist until the end of time, because if we don't have free will, we can't have true love. Mm. So it's it's very it's very yeah. interesting argument. <laughs> yeah, yeah that that is a very common Christian argument for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, Brian, you you said uh, this statement in the book a few times. Uh, so I know it's one of your one of the themes that are kind of tied and woven throughout. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell this quick story about personally how um, it was used against me with my own kids. <laughs> and uh, it, it's this, and I'm not calling anyone this name or any, but when this happened with my family, I was describing something. I don't remember if it was a person or as a situation, but I used the word retarded. I said, man, that's just retarded. And my kids jumped up and corrected me and said, dad, you can't use that word anymore. And I was, you know, uh, I was uh, put in my place and it controlled my reality. So one of the things that you said in the book a few times is that our language defines or controls our reality. Can you unpack that just a bit? <laughs> yeah. In fact, I think that, the, yeah. Wow. That's a good question. Um, okay. So, so postmodernism argues that reality is not knowable. Some, some branches believe there is no objective reality, right? But, but most of them are saying, no, no, there, there is a reality, but we can't know it because knowledge, um, objective knowledge of an objective reality is impossible for us as subjective human beings who are trapped by our subjective ideologies, right? Uh, but that's, I would argue that they're doing that for, for a specific philosophical agenda because, because of what they want to do with language, right? Mm-hmm. But therefore, they, they believe that um, language then uh, sculpts or creates re- reality for us. Now, the extreme form would be there's no objective reality, so language creates reality. Mm-hmm. But I think a milder, more accurate way of understanding that is I'll, I'll grant you that human autonomous reasoning cannot know objective reality Hmm. because to that degree, I would agree with the postmodernist in that we are prisoners of our subjective ideology. Hmm. The only way that we could know an objective reality is if it was revealed to us by the creator of that objective reality. Mm. So technically, I agree with the whole history of modern philosophy that ends up basically resulting in Nietzsche, which is nihilism, and the you know, mm. it's just it is madness, right? But that's where autonomous human reasoning ends up. And 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 I degre- I agree with that in principle that if you assume the absence of God, <laughs> then in fact postmodernism is right and language creates reality. To the best, to, because reality is not knowable, so all we've got is what we can cre- create, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and but as a Christian, I would argue, no, language doesn't create reality. But I agree that language is a um, it is a medium through which we are seeking to understand reality, right? Mm-hmm. So to the postmodern, you are creating reality because there is no reality to discover or there's we cannot discover reality it's not discoverable right but as a christian i believe there's an objective reality that our, the creator creates it but we he must reveal it to us or we wouldn't know it and of course i argue that god has through the bible and through jesus christ but yeah. 
but but I would admit that that because we are all philosophically, um, what's the word? Inclined. Uh, restricted or limited. We are all philosophically limited mm. by our worldviews, right? Worldviews are beliefs about the world that both limit and open us to what can be known. So your presuppositions, your faith commitments, which everybody has, the, the, the secular human autonomous reasoner thinks that they aren't, but they're ignorant. They actually assume things like they assume reason because they, they can't prove reason. They assume empirical observation and science, but they can't prove it. It's all assumed. So we have these presuppositions about reality and we then interpret reality through those presuppositions. Francis Schaeffer used to say it's like a pair of, of glasses and we, the glasses based on the tint of the glasses allows us to see things others may not see, but it also blocks us from things we can't like if we have rose colored glasses, we won't see certain colors. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so there's a truth to that in the fact that we are all contingent, finite, limited, uh, uh, human reasoners. Right. So, so therefore our language does in a sense determine what we can know about reality. And so in that sense, I agree with the postmodern that language does certainly, uh, direct culture yeah. into what it believes about reality. They believe that it either it's creating reality or it's just constructing reality, but I believe, no, it's about discovering reality, but even that discovery is limited and can be fall fallible, right? So therefore, that's why I, I agree to a certain amount that, that the language we use should be altered to reflect what we really believe reality is. Mm. Uh, but of course, as a Christian, you know, I... Uh, and so therefore, I, I accept some change of, of language over time. We realize, yeah, you know, I mean, to a certain degree, retarded, that, that can be a very insulting, denigrating, you know, thing to people. Um, but that's different from the postmodern who says the reason why retarded is wrong is because there is no app. All there is no abnormality. There's, you know what I'm saying? Like the yeah, belief yeah, yeah, itself yeah. in normality, this is queer theory. And queer theory, I think, is the ultimate monster. That's behind it all. Queer theory is the rejection of all norms and all absolutes and all, like, you know, every other version will, you know, feminism will accept, you know, or will reject patriarchy. But of course, it, it believes in matriarchy. But queer theory rejects all norms as being wrong. Therefore, there's no such thing as abnormality. So to call retarded is the same thing as why they would say calling a deaf person handicapped or a blind person handicapped. No, 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 they're not blind. They're not handicapped. It's just a different reality than what you have. So you can't say that they lack anything because that would be to call them abnormal. Does this make sense? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. that's why they're believing, that's why they're changing the words in, with a negative. Sometimes it's good because, yeah, words become insulting, you know, like the N word. I, I accept that, you know. Because of the history of that language of being course. used to be violently evil, I'm all for like, yeah, let's let's you know keep it out of our vocabulary, etc. Yeah. However, our our the in, the our um our inability or us not being allowed to refer to that N word in quotations or in historical context to show what really what people really said or thought. Their unwillingness to allow us to do that is a fascistic attempt to uh, control our minds now by telling us what we can and cannot say, yeah. uh, even if it's historically true. This is where if we were to quote someone saying the N-word, that's a historically or factually truthful statement. But they don't even want us to say a truthful statement because they're not interested in truth. There is no truth. Mm. There's only language and control of reality and they control reality through language and that's what they're trying to do. So this is the complex issue of language, which is, yeah, language limits us to what we can understand about reality. So, so we do have to be aware of just, just like, just like the Christian says, uh, you know, abortion is murder of a human being. It's not 
fetal tissue cells. Fetal tissue cells is an attempt to dehumanize the baby to justify murdering it, right? And so we, we should push to keep the language for what it truly is, um, just like they're trying to do to change the language to make it euphemisms. You know, this was the, the power of Nazism is the power of the modern fascism of today where they're, re, they're, they're calling, like, for instance, they'll call, uh, you know, uh, they'll call parents who are, who are seeking to protect their children from this radical pornographic um, ideology in the schools, in books, right? They'll call them book burners and domestic terrorists because the language is, if we can link them with mm -hmm. this notion of domestic terrorists, now they are the equivalent of Nazis or people who are trying to take over the government. Therefore, we can imprison them and ultimately kill them. That's the goal, really. But the, our own government is doing that against the people, right? They're calling uh, these parents domestic terrorists in order to justify going after them legally and putting them in prison so that they cannot protect their children. That's the power of language. Wow. Man, that's, that's good. Yeah. Mm. yeah go, go on. And by the way, on. Oh, this, the, this language is radical in the universities. They've been doing it for decades, and it's all over my novel, right? I've got all the, all the accusations. You know, you're a white supremacist. You're a racist. You're a bigot. You're a homophobe. You're a transphobe. All this stuff. These, the kids are, have been brainwashed. That's literally all they think of is in terms of these same thought patterns of, 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 of false accusations of things like bigotry, racism. It's just the isms become the sort of the linguistic blinders for them so that they don't have to think or listen to the opponents, right? In other words, in other words, why should I listen to this conservative person if they're in fact a Nazi, Right? right? You punch Nazis, you kill Nazis, you don't listen to them. Or, or, or white supremacists, you know? It's like white supremacy, you know, what white supremacy is, is the belief that the white race is supreme over all of the races. Like, nobody believes that in, in America. Maybe there's, my, obviously, there's always a fringe 20, 30 people that will believe everything that you can possibly think is crazy, they'll believe it. But, you know, basically, no one in America basically believes that. But yet white supremacy is the accusation of what our culture's white supremacist. Why are they saying this? This is insane. Well, what they really mean is whites in the majority means white supremacy. But they're linking it with a notion of an old concept of white supremacy, which means we're racists who want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, who want to oppress minorities, see? So it's a linguistic game that... And again, that, I have that all throughout the novel, and, and I try to show how this extremism of language ultimately results in extremism of behavior. Ideas yeah. have consequences. Join us in part two for the rest of the conversation.